we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Tonight on The Readout. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay. Whatever happened to them, which is, it's unfortunate for other people overreacting, but everything I said about them is true. Not true, Rudy. A judge has already ruled that you defamed Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, who tonight are awaiting a jury's decision on how many millions you will have to pay for your election lies. Also tonight, the strange axis of Putin, Orban, and the Republican Party, and their mutual embrace of authoritarianism. Plus, the U.S. Supreme Court is now directly involved in Trump's legal battles. It's a court Trump largely built, and now Trump is banking on his hand-picked justices to come through for him and keep him out of jail. But we begin tonight in a Washington, D.C. courthouse where an eight-person jury has begun their deliberations into how much one Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani should have to pay in damages to the two Georgia election workers he defamed following the 2020 presidential election, accusing them of engaging in election fraud. Giuliani was expected to testify today as the lone defense witness in his case, but pulled out at the last minute, even after claiming earlier in the week that when he testified, we would get the whole story that would prove he told the truth. But the real truth is that this is just the latest example highlighting Giuliani's spiraling downfall during his second act in life. That second act involved being at the center of many of Donald Trump's most insidious and damaging scandals that ultimately led to both of Trump's presidential impeachments, as well as what we're seeing play out with the House Republican efforts to impeach President Biden. Remember, it was Giuliani who Trump sent to Ukraine in 2019 to try to dig up dirt on then-candidate Biden and his son Hunter to peddle false information about the family's dealings in Ukraine, including with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. Giuliani's pursuits involved pressuring Ukrainian officials to investigate the baseless conspiracy theories he was hawking. These were the efforts leading to Trump's notorious call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, resulting in Trump's first impeachment. Giuliani then became the front man for Trump's next big lie, that the 2020 election was stolen. From the infamous Four Seasons total landscaping presser to the hair-dry, dripping RNC presser and everything in between, Rudy was relentlessly acting as Trump's conspiracy attack dog, including by defaming Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, which he is literally paying for right now. It also led to the events of January 6th and Trump's second impeachment. The defamation trial wrapping up right now is just one of a host of financial, legal and other crises Giuliani is facing, all adding to the total ruin of a man once dubbed America's mayor. And as the day as the Daily Beast points out, 
The Giuliani downfall has been slow but precipitous. 2021 was the ruining of his professional reputation, with New York and the District of Columbia suspending his law license for spreading lies and his role in the January 6th insurrection. This year exposed his financial ruin. Next year, it could be prison. Because we can't forget that he, along with Donald Trump and numerous other co-defendants, are facing multiple criminal charges in Georgia's election interference case, a case that could lead Giuliani, a former U.S. attorney who made his name prosecuting RICO cases against mobsters in New York, to be put in jail for many of the same racketeering charges. Joining me now is the Reverend Al Sharpton, president of the National Action Network and host of Politics Nation on MSNBC. And David Korn, bureau chief for Mother Jones and an MSNBC political analyst. And Rev, I do want to start with you because you know Rudy Giuliani. You've known him for a long time. It's interesting because the way that uh, I kind of looked at Donald Trump is that he was like a national Rudy. Like he behaved nationally the way Rudy behaved toward New Yorkers. Uh, Those of us who lived in New York experienced it. He was sort of a mini Trump. But to what extent do you think, just knowing both of these men, to what extent was Rudy influencing Trump to believe the lies and conspiracy theories that he at least claims to believe? It is clear that Trump's whole political behavior was one he learned watching Rudy Giuliani and, uh, and, and the New York political scene of bullying people, of racial division, one against the other. And I think that uh, because in many ways Donald Trump learned the trade of politics, uh, looking at a guy like Rudy, Rudy probably had a lot of influence on how uh, Donald Trump was going to react to losing an election. And also because Rudy Giuliani was a a heralded U.S. attorney and then became America's mayor, he had the credentials to make advice that one could take seriously, even when you know you are motivated by your own ego in the terms of Trump to uh, almost want to finish the lines that Rudy feeds you. But you have the comfort of knowing here's this very credible, great figure that knows law saying, yes, this theory, yes, this theory. And the desperation that Rudy Giuliani showed in trying to attach himself to uh, uh, Donald Trump, whether it was because he wanted limelight, no one knows. But the fall that he has taken and has not been able to at any point abort the fall. Yes, it's been slow, but it's been steady. At no point did he try to catch himself and save his own legacy. And here we sit looking at a civil jury waiting to see how much he must pay in money that reportedly he will not have anyway. But he still has a criminal trial. None of us that were critical of him during his years as mayor when he had a very hostile relationship with the black community, particularly in New York, could have predicted that Rudy would fall this far and this fast. Right. I mean, and David, I mean, the thing is, it is spectacular in the sense that this guy was a U.S. attorney. Like, he knows the law. He prosecuted RICO cases, yet he was willing to commit felonies. He was willing to be clown himself by going overseas to try to prove this cockamamie theory that the real theft of the election was Ukraine's trying to steal the election from Trump just because Trump was mad that he got caught working with Russia to get elected in 2016. It's all about Trump's feelings and emotions that Rudy seems to be sort of trying to babysit and sort of 
put a binky in his mouth and say, no, I'll prove that all your crazy theories are true. And yet, how wild is it to you, just as a journalist watching this, that this guy mm. was willing to commit crimes, including now lying outright in a ridiculous lie against these two election workers, causing them to be humiliated and attacked and threatened with death. It's quite the narrative. He went from crusading prosecutor in New York, as you noted, locking up mob bosses and Wall Street crooks, white collar criminals. He went very hard on them to then becoming kind of a demagogic mayor to now a sort of clownish figure. I mean, when he was going, he was the one, according to the testimony before the House uh, January 6th committee, who basically told Trump on election night, don't concede. Go out there, say you won. There were also reports that he was a little bit inebriated at the time he did this. Uh, but I don't think Trump needed a lot of egging on to do that. But there was Rudy, a guy who his job used to be to lock up crooks and, 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 and respect the law, telling the president to lie about victory. And then he goes on in those months afterwards with these clownish uh, crusade. I mean, he, one highlight or lowlight of that whole point was when he went to Rusty Bowers, the Republican Speaker of the House in Arizona, and said he wanted him to block the electors. And Rusty said, he's testified to this, you know, uh, I said, bring me the evidence and I'll look at it. And then he flies out there with Jenna Ellis, another Trump attorney, and he shows up at the meeting and Rusty Bowers says, where's the evidence? And they look at each other, go, oh, we kind of left it in the hotel room. And he goes, we have theories, but we don't have a lot of evidence. And a guy who spent decades in the legal field to behave this way is almost unfathomable. I mean, I don't know what made the turn with him. I have a theory. I think it has to do with this hatred of Hillary Clinton that put him in the Trump camp. But I think an important thing to remember this moment is He's, you know, after this, he has to deal, as the Rev noted, with this criminal case in Atlanta. There are three attorneys, former Trump attorneys, three, Kenneth Cheeseborough, uh, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis. And they've all worked with Rudy in trying to overturn the election. And they all have now pleaded guilty. And they've said crimes were committed by pleading guilty. They have conceded that in this effort to overturn the election that he led crimes were committed. And two of those people, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis, were at that infamous hair dyeing, uh -huh. dripping press conference. I don't know what we call it. Yeah. And so his own comrades have said, we committed crimes. Yeah. It really leaves him on a pretty big hook. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, Rev, I mean, I think that Rudy Giuliani is one of those people who's a triumph of substance over over I mean, of, of form over substance. Right. I mean, people thought he was this great mayor because he had one good day on 9-11. But he's also the guy uh, who, you know, was forcing the NYPD to walk his girlfriend's dogs. That's not his wife. That would be his girlfriend he was cheating with. He's the guy who announced he was going to divorce his actual wife, you know, during a TV press conference. I mean, this is not a guy uh, who was really what he said he was. He tried to stay in office for a third term illegally and said after 9-11, I'm just going to stay. That sounds like Trump. He's very similar. But I want to read the closing argument against Rudy. It says days after Mr. Giuliani reminds you, day after day, Mr. Giuliani reminds you who he is, said Matthew Gottlieb, an attorney for the plaintiffs. Um, he said Mr. Giuliani's defense strategy was to convince jurors he was more important than the women he defamed. Rich, famous people have valuable reputations and ordinary people are irrelevant, replaceable, worthless. Mr. Giuliani's defense is his reputation 
reputation, his comfort and his goals are more important than those of Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. This is a fiction and it ends today. Uh, this is also somebody who made money off 9-11. Let me play the, one of the voicemails left for Ruby Freeman. This was played during the trial. You're going to jail, Ruby. You're going to get locked up, Ruby. That's election fraud, Ruby. What was on the USB drive, Ruby? You're all going to f jail, you piece of f Rev, if you actually know what Rudy was like, it actually seems like this is kind of the fitting end, right? He played in racism. Racism was his stock and trade as mayor, and this is how he ends. This is just one of his many cases. And when you look at the fact that his being mayor, he was the one that championed broken windows, stop and frisk, where he did not feel that parts of the city mattered like other parts of the city, that we had no rights that anyone had to re, uh, respect. Meet with black leaders when we had the shooting of Amadou Diallo, a, a young uh, man took his key out in his best view of his house and the police shot him at him 41 times, hitting him 19 times. And it was his key, not a gun. And Rudy wouldn't even meet with black leaders, forget black activists like me. He wouldn't meet with the state controller, but the Manhattan Borough president at the time. He has always operated like it's us against them and we are more important. And now the irony, I would say, uh, what happens in karma and with God's will is two black women yep. are the first to legally bring him where the black community uh, suffered in his in his being mayor. Yeah, uh, it's ironic that that two black women that he thought were marginal and unimportant mm. and he couldn't even take the stand and testify. Let's remember, he said he was going to take the stand. He was going to be able to stand up to all of this and expose the truth. And at the end, he was a no-show. He went from being a champion to being Roberto Duran. Mm. No mas, no mas. That's mm. what happened today and, to Rudy Giuliani. And there you go. Last word to you on this, David Korn. Let's put up a list of all that he's got to face. The Georgia 2020 election, federal trial, his unpaid legal fees. He's being sued by his former lawyer, Robert Costello. Sexual assault and harassment charges. These are really gross. The things he did to a former employee named Noel Dumphy and also this defamation charge that could bankrupt him. Um, your thoughts? on the, the twilight of Rudy Giuliani. You know, I've always thought that one of the smallest type of person one can be is a bully. To use your power to punch down, and that's what he did with Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. He thought, and I think the Rev, you know, just made this point that he was more important, he was bigger, he could do whatever he wanted with their lives. And these are people who are elections, election workers, you know, people like this volunteer and, and go to work across the country every day to preserve our democracy. He had no respect. He had no respect, as I noted earlier, for the rule of law mm -hmm. or for any facts. It was all whatever he could get away with because he was Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. Well, the fact that they brought down this bully um, yeah. is finally justice. It, it, it is indeed. Uh, and we are awaiting that verdict still. Um, we'll look tomorrow. Reverend Al Sharpton, David Korn. Friends, thank you very much. Up next on The Readout, MAGA Republicans joined forces with Vladimir Putin and his Hungarian henchman, Viktor Orban, to boost right-wing movements around the world at the expense of democracy. The Readout continues after this. got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. Yes, 
Yeah. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. This morning, the reclusive and hermetically sealed Russian president, Vladimir Putin, held a four-hour press conference, making it explicitly clear that there will be no peace until he accomplishes his stated objective of complete control of Ukraine. He also mocked Western resolve in the region. The peace will come when we reach our goals. They have been uh, importing things for free. freeloading, but, you know, it will come to an end sooner or later. All the things that the Westerners had promised were supplied, but all of that was annihilated. Putin, who has held power for nearly 24 years, announced last week that he is running for re-election. What he didn't tell the mostly propagandist reporters is that his troops have suffered devastating losses. Nearly 80 percent of Russian military personnel have died in Ukraine. That's according to a classified assessment provided to Congress. Putin's press conference came on the very same day that his closest ally and fellow autocrat, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, marched into a 27-nation European Union summit with the stated goal of kneecapping Ukraine's attempt to join the EU. The 26 other countries had different plans. They voted to begin negotiations for Ukraine's membership while Orban stepped out of the room. They have yet determined to determine aid to Ukraine. This is a major victory for Ukraine, as their president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has been traveling the globe to plead his country's case. Congressional Republicans have abandoned Ukraine, despite overwhelming support in both parties and both houses of Congress. And will likely an aid will, li- will likely lapse because Republicans insist on debating a topic wholly unrelated to Ukraine, American border policy. Meanwhile, thousands of Ukrainians continue to die as U.S. congressional Republicans, Putin and Orban, work together to deliver Russia a victory. Fiona Hill, a former official at the U.S. National Security Council specializing in Russian and European affairs, warned of how devastating it would be if Ukraine were abandoned. She tells Politico, the problem is that many members of Congress don't want to see President Biden win on any front. People are incapable now of separating off giving Biden a win from actually allowing Ukraine to win. They are thinking less about U.S. national security, European security, international security and foreign policy and much more about how they can humiliate Biden. She also makes clear that this isn't just about Russia. It has larger ramifications for Iran, China and North Korea because a military failure for Ukraine is going to shift the entire balance in the Indo-Pacific. Meanwhile, the National Defense Authorization Act is heading to the president's desk and buried in it is a bipartisan rebuke of Donald Trump and President Putin. 
It contains legislation that would prevent any president from withdrawing from the withdrawing the United States from NATO without approval from the Senate or an act of Congress. Joining me now is Ann Applebaum, staff writer for The Atlantic. And Ann, thank you for being here. I want to get your comments on that last bit, because publicly Republicans behave as if anything Donald Trump wants is what they truly want. But behind the scenes, you have people like Marco Rubio, who's very obedient to Trump publicly, working to make sure that if he becomes president, he can't withdraw us from NATO by himself. What do you make of that sort of duality? I mean, I think it's important to first take a step back and ask why this is important. And just to echo what Fiona Hill said, um, you know, the world is watching the U.S. and its allies in Ukraine. Are we able to stay together? Can we stay united? Will we keep behind Ukraine? Will we make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose? Uh, Putin's press conference today was all about trying to you know, prove that that wouldn't happen. He made dismissive comments about the West falling apart. Um, so the, you know, the, 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 deeper, the deeper issue is, is there a collective West? Do we believe in democracy? Are we willing to support um, other democracies? And I think actually, Probably most Republicans, certainly most Republicans in the Senate, still believe in that. They still think that, um, you know, democracy is important and collective, and collective defense matters. But in public, they are increasingly likely to kowtow to Trump. Um, not to speak too loudly, um, because they know that he's now the leader of their party and they have to go along with what he says. And he's much more inclined to agree with, uh, you know, with Viktor Orban or, or, or Vladimir Putin in his scorn for other democracies. And what is the significance of the cons of the EU considering allowing Ukraine in and especially doing so while Viktor Orban's out of the room? It's really significant. Um, it's an important, um, you know, it'll be a big psychological boost for the Ukrainians. Um, it means that the Europeans are already talking about what's going to happen after the war, how Ukraine will be integrated with the rest of Europe, how it will become a normal country again. It opens all kinds of avenues to investment. Um, it's very, very important. Um, and I, I, you know, I understand that there was a deal made <laughs> that, that Orban, who has objected to Ukraine being part of the EU and who has tried to block aid to Ukraine, over the last several years, the deal was that he would, you know, as you said, he would leave the room. Um, he was a lot of pressure was put on him even just to do that. But he's, you know, again, he's he's aligned himself with these, you know, autocratic forces around the world with Russia, actually also with China, um, with Trump. Um, you know, all of those are, are, are countries that uh, you know, or, or leaders or political movements who have a lot of scorn for democracy, who believe autocracy is a better system, and they and they seek to support one another wherever they can. And, you know, what, what strikes me, too, is that despite Russia's failure to annex Ukraine, they've lost so many troops. They're lying to their own public about how successful it is to try to annex this enormous country that doesn't want anything to do with them. But it is still sending a signal, right? Is it, is it, is, am I too alarmist to think that the leader in in Venezuela looks at what they're doing and says, I can annex part of Guyana, that China looks at what Russia is doing and says, maybe we'll just we'll go ahead and annex Taiwan, that this actually makes expansionist powers more aggressive. No, I mean, I th I'm afraid that's absolutely true. You know, this is really, in a way, the flip side of globalization. You know, everybody's watching everybody all the time and looking for examples. And of course, if the U.S. fails in Ukraine, if the if the alliance falls apart, then other autocratic powers will say, right, who's going to stop me? As you say, you know, who's going to stop Venezuela uh, from invading Guyana? Who's going to stop China from invading Taiwan? 
um, you know, okay, the U.S. can do some sanctions, but they aren't really capable of holding together an alliance, you know, of blocking even something as egregious as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has involved, you know, massive civilian casualties, you know, targets are, you know, cities are targeted, um, you know, civilian, um, you know, hospitals and schools are targeted, um, and yet we are unable to stop it. And I think if we, if we give up now, there are lots of other, uh, you know, authoritarians around the world who will learn that lesson. You know, I'm wondering if, if one of the other lessons that people are, are, are sort of looking at around the world is that, you know, democracy is not efficient and also cannot necessarily sustain itself. We couldn't defend our own capital. I've had when we were in Ghana, my husband and I, and, and we had some f- folks in Ghana say you guys couldn't even defend your own capital. And you're telling the rest of the world how to be a democracy. You know, we've seen the U.N. process completely fail in Israel, uh, the Israel Gaza situation is the message that the rest of the world getting is that the democracies are so dysfunctional that people are willing to give these other forms of government as horrific as they are a shot. I mean, actually, it's our democracy that's the most dysfunctional or that looks the most dysfunctional from the outside right now. Um, and yes, the U.S., it, you know, it, it's an, we're an unusual country in that, you know, there, you know, there are people in Britain who know more about the U.S. than they know about France. And, you know, people know more about U.S. politics than they know about their own na- next door neighbor's politics. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so people know our system. They follow it. And the dysfunction in the U.S. has an echo. As you say, people say, well, look, you're, you know, you're the best democracy in the world. Or you're supposed to be. You're the biggest democracy in the world and your system doesn't work. So, you know, why should we expect it to work here? Yeah, it is. A, it is a troubling problem. Uh, but thank you. It's always great to talk with you to try to unpack it. And Alpabound, thank you very much. And coming up, Justice Clarence Thomas faces growing pressure to recuse himself as the Supreme Court agrees to hear cases involving Trump's claims of immunity and a statute used to prosecute January 6th rioters. More next. got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Time and again, we've seen the current conservative majority Supreme Court undo decades of precedent to rule in favor of Republican interests on everything from abortion to affirmative action. But now the court has a new opportunity to cater to the far right and directly help Donald Trump in one of his many criminal cases. Yesterday, the justices agreed to hear a case that will consider whether the government can charge January 6th rioters with a statute that makes it a crime to obstruct an official proceeding which could not only upend the prosecutions of hundreds of insurrectionists who've already been charged or sentenced, but could also potentially impact or delay special counsel Jack Smith's election interference case, as obstruction is one of the four counts brought against Trump. 
a delay is exactly what Smith was trying to avoid. When just days ago, he asked the Supreme Court to fast track a review of Trump's claim that he is immune for prosecutions of any kind, even for trying to forcibly stay in office because it happened while he was president. And while it may seem like there would be a pretty obvious answer there, the people who could be deciding this are three Trump appointed justices, along with Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Joining me now is Melissa Murray, law professor at New York University, former clerk to Judge Sonia Sotomayor and MSNBC legal analyst. Melissa, how on earth could a case even make it to the Supreme Court that says that the government can't charge people who did insurrection with insurrection with interfering with the processes of Congress? Well, Joy, the case is called Fisher versus United States, and this January 6th rioter was charged under the statute that was actually passed in the wake of the Enron scandal. So one of the arguments that was made was that the statute was never intended to apply to a situation where someone was obstructing a congressional proceeding, but rather was meant to deal with circumstances where individuals were doing things like evidence tampering in furtherance of the obstruction of official proceedings. And so these don't necessarily match up. Mr. Fisher is also arguing that he was never in the Capitol for a long time and for that reason had no intent to actually obstruct the congressional proceeding. So it's really a question of statutory interpretation and whether the scope and substance of this statutory provision was meant to apply to this kind of conduct, the rioting at the Capitol. And how could that possibly then apply to Trump? Because Trump, at least if you read Jack Smith's filing, was directly trying to interfere with the processes of Congress since the process in question was certifying the election of somebody other than him. No, that's exactly right. Um, I think, though, if this court is inclined to rule for Mr. Fisher that this statute does not apply to him, that it was not intended to apply to him, um, then it raises questions about whether it should be applied to Mr. Trump. And again, it is one of the four charges in that January 6th election interference indictment that Jack Smith has filed. And this really puts the Supreme Court and its conservative supermajority on their heels a bit, because this is a court that has said that you've got to look at the four corners of the statute, the words of the statute, the text of the statute. If you look at the text of the statute, I think a very natural reading of it is that it could apply in circumstances where individuals were trying to obstruct any official proceeding, whether it was something with regard to the valuation of a company or a congressional proceeding like this one. It is only if you look to the purpose of the statute and look at its origins in the Enron scandal that maybe things get a little shakier. But this is a court of committed textualists, so we'll see just how committed they are. Or it's a court of alien canons who are committed to do whatever they they want, you know, and, and whatever uh, suits them in the moment, and if, especially if it helps maybe their guy, Donald Trump. Uh, let me read you, because I think Jack Smith's um, filing actually was pretty brilliant. His strategy has been really brilliant to try to cut Donald Trump off from this delay, delay, delay strategy. This is what Public Notice wrote about it. Trump's lawyers insist that the Constitution take care, Constitution's take care clause made Trump an all-purpose policeman obliged to interfere with the certification of President Biden's electoral victory. This is a particularly odd position because the 12th Amendment to the Constitution lays out specific roles for Congress and the vice president in the electoral certification, but not for the president. Um, so talk about this just for a moment, because it isn't it is slightly unusual for the Supreme Court to skip the D.C. circuit and to just jump before them. But it's not completely unusual. Right. And is this a solid argument uh, on the part of Trump's lawyers that somehow interfering with the election is part of his job? 
Right. So we're pivoting from the Fisher case, which is about the January 6th charges, and now turning to Trump's efforts to delay this this trial altogether by arguing that he is immune from prosecution as a former president. What Jack Smith has done here is basically said, we can't wait for the intermediate appellate court to make a ruling here that would take too long. This country needs to know whether one of its candidates for president is a convicted felon or not. And so it is sought certiorari without judgment, um, before judgment in this case. And it's asked the Supreme Court to not only do that, to take this case, but to do so with incredible expedition. And the question that the court has to address is whether the scope of presidential immunity, which has never been applied in the context of a criminal case, because we have never had (laughs) a former president or a sitting president be indicted on criminal charges, but whether or not the scope of presidential immunity goes so far as to insulate a president from criminal charges. And Donald Trump is arguing that his discouragement of the counting of the votes or the certification of the votes in Congress, that was merely part of his job as president and therefore within the scope, within that outer perimeter of his duties and therefore renders him immune. Jack Smith is arguing that he wasn't even supposed to be there. That is a job for the vice president. This is not part of the president's official duties. He has no immunity here. Yeah. Uh, Really quickly, based on Dobbs, should we just expect that the same five who overturned uh, abortion rights will rule against Miffer Pristone. Should we just brace ourselves for that? I think this is going to present a real challenge for this court because Dobbs, basically, the court said that this is an issue that should be decided by the states, by the people. And yet we have a decision if the court rules in favor of the Fifth Circuit would make it very difficult for the abortion pill to be accessed around the country, even in those states where there are more liberal abortion policies. I also think it's important to note that this case is like a Venn diagram where it pits the conservatives' antipathy for abortion with their antipathy for the administrative state and gives Mm. them an opportunity to really stick it to the FDA and administrative agencies. So who knows if they'll be able to resist? Yeah. And also Samuel Alito is, you know, he thinks he's doing God's work, his version of God's work. And he's just, they're going to do what they want. Oh, Melissa Murray, uh, thank you all very, thank you very much. Uh, and still ahead, Israel's leaders rebuff increasingly urgent calls to pause or scale back their military assault on Gaza, choosing instead to lean into the conflict despite the massive humanitarian cost. We'll be right back. The suffering in Gaza continues, with the country facing yet another phone and internet blackout as Israeli bombing continues. It was so intense in Khan Yunus that medics said not all of the wounded could be rescued. Displaced Palestinians are facing dropping temperatures and intense flooding, as well as acute food and water shortages. People, and this is also something completely new, people are stopping at aid trucks taking the food and eating it right away. And this is how desperate and hungry they are. And I witness this firsthand. This is something which has to do with the total despair the people are expressing in the Gaza Strip. And amidst these conditions, there are still 135 hostages in Gaza. Yesterday, the families of American hostages met with President Biden. And my colleague Jen Psaki interviewed some of them today, including Ronan and Orna Nutra, whose 22-year-old son is currently being held by Hamas. There's a lot of pressure on Israel, and, and probably on, with a good reason, to supply humanitarian support to, to Gaza mm-hmm. and to ease a little bit the pain of the, of the people there. Where is the humanitarian support to our kids? 
Who is visiting them? Who is making sure they're fed? They're getting water. They're getting air. Mm -hmm. right. Who is giving them medicine if they need it? Taking care of their wounds. We're talking still about 137 people, right? Elderly people, still children in there, women, men. Who, who need to have access. Yes. Where's the world on that? You can see more of Jen Psaki's interviews with American hostage families this Sunday on MSNBC. Today, Israel's defense minister said that the war will last more than a few months, with Prime Minister Netanyahu dismissing international pressure for a ceasefire, saying, quote, nothing will stop us. But NBC News reports that the Biden administration has told the Israeli government that it wants Israel to end its large-scale ground campaign in Gaza and transition to a more targeted phase of its war against Hamas, according to two U.S. officials familiar with the discussions. There is also a major divide emerging over what peace even looks like, something that was highlighted by an Israeli diplomat's comments on the future of the two-state solution this week. And that is up next. As calls for a Gaza ceasefire increase, there is the looming question of what exactly happens after this war eventually ends. In a shocking interview, Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom said a two-state solution is not an option, something the United States has been promoting for years. Is there still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realize the Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but of October and we need to build a new one. And in but, order to build a new one... does that new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own? Does, think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is, what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realized they in have 7th a state, of October. Though? The answer is absolutely no, and I'll tell you why. Yes, Israel right. knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state solution is dead? Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked? Joining me now is Daniel Levy, former Israeli peace negotiator and president of the U.S. Middle East Project. And Daniel, this feels like a very big deal. I think it's been clear to anybody who's been observing Benjamin Netanyahu, who held up that that picture. Let's look at it. He held up a, a, a greater, you know, Eretz Israel picture in the U.N. that showed no Palestine, just in Israel, that he's against a two state solution. But how big of a deal is it for that to seem to be the official policy now of the government of Israel? It is the official policy. It's, it doesn't date back, Joy, as you know, to the interview of the ambassador where I am in the United Kingdom. That is the official policy of the Israeli government. No Israeli government, actually, has ever endorsed two states, has ever endorsed the 1967 lines. So it's refreshing, perhaps, not so much that the ambassador said this, but that the world is paying attention. I'll read you the guidelines of Israel's governing coalition. The Jewish people have an exclusive right to all parts of the land of Israel and to settlement in all parts, including Judea and Samaria. So what we have here is that the official position of Benjamin Netanyahu's government is from the river to the sea, only Jews can be free. I know people have heard another chant, but that is the official position of the Israeli government. And I know that President Biden recently mentioned the name of one of the ministers. Ben Gavir. But it's too easy to hide behind one extremist minister. This is the position of the entire government. By the way, it was Netanyahu who brought these extremists, Ben Gavir and Smotrich, together at his home to form a united party to enable them to get into the parliament, 
and to later join his coalition. And I think the follow-up question, if mm-hmm. one, one, one sentence, Joy, mm-hmm. the follow-up question, which that interviewer didn't ask, but I think which everyone, every interviewer should ask when they're talking to a member of this government is, if that is your official position, then what is your answer for giving equality and rights to all the people who live in this one state or do you run an apartheid state, which is the reality? Well, and right. And that would be the fault. And for those in the audience who are not familiar with the terminology, uh, Netanyahu often says Judea and Samaria. That means the West Bank. And the, you know, they refer to it Thank as you. Judea yes. and Samaria, they're biblical terms. Um, and for, for just to, to clarify for those who do not know who Ben Gavir is, could you just briefly tell us who he is? Uh, Itamar Ben Gavir, you're right to ask me to clarify that, Joy. He is currently the Minister of National Security. Essentially, it's a glorified minister of police. It's a senior position. It's a war cabinet position. Um, he has been prosecuted in the past for hate crimes, for racism, for violence. If people remember, there was an Israeli prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, assassinated. He was one of the leaders of the incitement right in the early days of Oslo. But like I said, we shouldn't focus on him. We should focus on the yeah. entirety of the government which has endorsed that position. Yeah. And by the way, I should note that the one of the slogans of the Likud party, which this uh, ambassador and uh, Bibi Netanyahu belong to, is from the river to the sea. That is actually one of their slogans. Let, let me uh, yes. ask you that the, to the same question you asked, which is the natural follow up question, because that was what I thought. If the answer is not to give Palestinians their own state and Palestine already is represented in the U.N., you know, the U.N. recognizes that they have a state. If that's not the answer to me, the only other options are expulsion, mass expulsion of Palestine. Palestinians to kick them out of the land, which, uh, you know, kick them all out or apartheid, because I don't see what other unless it's living on some sort of reservations or Bantu stands. I don't understand what the other option is. Right. I mean, you know, this is the indigenous people being driven into reservations, but the land here is very small. I don't want to continue to draw an analogy with anywhere where there was enough land to drive the indigenous people into reservations. But you're absolutely right. And the debate inside Israel increasingly today is between those who are calling for ethnic cleansing. That's the call we've heard prior to October 7th. But increasingly during this war, we have heard senior ministers calling for the mass displacement of Palestinians. They call it a second Nakba, because remember, the majority of the Palestinian community in the foundation of Israel were driven from their land. When people look at Gaza, why do so many people live in refugee camps? It's because they were expelled from their homes inside Israel. So it's the call for ethnic cleansing, or it's the continuation of living under a regime that has been legally designated, not just by Palestinians, by Israeli human rights organizations, by Amnesty and Human Rights Watch as a regime that meets the legal definition of apartheid. The alternative to that is give everyone equal rights or have a genuine deoccupation and sovereign Palestinian state. And of course, you still have to address the question of Palestinian refugees and those living inside Israel who who face structural discrimination. And I will note that there's been a lot of violence on the West Bank. Um, A mosque was desecrated during the raids uh, by Israel. There's been a lot of issues in the West Bank um, as well. Um, Let me ask you about the Biden-Bibi relationship. Mm. 
Because it seems that admitting this out loud, even though, again, it's been fairly clear this is his position, it is, in a sense, an embarrassment to Biden. And I thought that it was sort of a, a, a thing inside of Israeli government, a, a truism, that you never distance from the Americans. You never kick the Americans in the face because the Americans are the best friend and are the, the supplier of arms and the supplier of aid. Well, this is the thing. Prime Minister Netanyahu, over 20 years ago, during a brief pause in when he wasn't in office, made a comment that America is an easy thing to lead. And I fear that that is exactly how he feels today with the Biden administration. We've seen the visit now of Jake Sullivan in the region. We've seen the recent comments of President Biden. But those, I don't want to dismiss them entirely, but they still feel entirely inadequate to the moment at hand. They're saying to the Israelis, you know, kill less civilians. That's not going to bring back the more than seven and a half thousand children, 17,000 civilians killed already. Of course, the 1,200 Israelis from October 7th will never come back. But those statements are, unfortunately, I don't think going to change the way Israel is conducting this war. As long as the war goes on, the humanitarian catastrophe created by Israel, and it's horrendous, cannot be treated. And so the missing words are, if you don't do this, then we will stop supplying weapons and we will oversee yeah. those weapons we've already supplied. The other uh, option, of course, the Ottoman Empire had Jews, Christians and Muslims all living in peace. It can be done. Um, Daniel Levy, thank you very much. And that is tonight's readout. got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.